Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Damian Garde, recording from Stat's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from Stat's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from Stat's Outpost in San Francisco. It is Thursday, October 17th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First, we'll talk about how the situation between the NBA and the Chinese government has implications for the drug industry, which relies more and more on China for its profits. Then we'll talk to filmmakers behind Unnatural Selection. That's a new Netflix documentary series that dissects the stories, science, and ethics behind genome editing. Where does the money come from that venture capitalists invest into biotech? Our stat colleague Kate Sheridan joins us to talk about the surprising source of much of that cash. And finally, back by popular demand, we'll bring you another lightning round. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. Now, the NBA is facing backlash in China after the general manager of the Houston Rockets posted a tweet in support of the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. The general man- so this is not a podcast about geopolitics, and perhaps, unfortunately, it's not a podcast about the NBA either. But over the past couple of weeks, thanks to that tweet, there has been an international conversation about how global businesses should interact with China. And this being a podcast about biotech, we figured it's worth discussing how that conversation applies to the drug industry. The industry, of course, has come to rely more and more on China as a source for pharmaceutical raw materials and a lucrative market to sell its products. So how did this all get started? So the angst between Hong Kong and mainland China is obviously very old, but the debate as it applies to American businesses stems from the ongoing situation there in Hong Kong. A controversial extradition bill is driving massive protests in Hong Kong. Protesters clashed with police Monday, one day after hundreds of thousands of people marched peacefully through the city. So that extradition bill has since been withdrawn, but the protests are still happening. Hong Kongers are now demanding much broader political reforms and rejecting the influence of mainland China. And we've seen the ongoing unrest in Hong Kong impact biotech. The Hong Kong Biotechnology Organization said this month that it was postponing a conference in Hong Kong scheduled for this coming January. The organizers attributed the decision to, quote, the unpredictable situation in town, end quote, referencing safety concerns amid the demonstrations. So amid all of that came the aforementioned tweet, which led to a strong rebuke from the Chinese government and threatened the millions of dollars the NBA makes in China. And all of that amplified a key question. What is it that we expect from American companies when it comes to doing business overseas? Yeah. And, you know, the genesis of this conversation we're having, you know, Damien, you and I were texting and I referenced the the video of Steve Kerr, who's the Golden State Warriors head coach, who's a thoughtful guy, who's often asked a lot of questions about things outside of the NBA. And, you know, and he was asked to respond to this whole controversy and about China. And you can say he was clearly uncomfortable, didn't want to discuss the topic. And I said to you, I said, you know, what if we replace Steve Kerr with, you know, the CEO of a large U.S.-based pharmaceutical company? How would that conversation go? And for what it's worth, we asked the drug industry about this. Pharma, the big trade group, had no comment. And Bio, the other big trade group, didn't respond to our request for comment. So I think all of that begs the question, why do we think that biotech 
is so uncomfortable with this question? Why don't they want to talk about it? It's a great question, Rebecca, and I think the answer is probably along the same lines or the same motivation that the NBA doesn't really want to talk about it, is that China is a very significant, meaningful business partner with the biopharma industry here in the United States. And anything that's going to disrupt that relationship is something that they probably just feel uncomfortable talking about. You know, there are a few meaningful distinctions between the NBA and the drug industry. The league kind of has a reputation that, you know, perhaps you could debate, but as being kind of progressive and and forward thinking, which, you know, we don't necessarily expect that from our pharmaceutical CEOs. However, Ken Frazier, of uh, the CEO of Merck, quite famously, after the situation in Charlottesville and the president's response to that, he did publicly talk about how he felt and weighed in on, on what was a social issue at the time. So there's precedent for the drug industry kind of stepping aside from its capitalist interests to talk about issues that ostensibly don't relate to that. And it's probably also worth noting, guys, that we're talking here about, you know, selling drugs into China, which is, you know, maybe on a different level than it is watching a basketball game, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think if the NBA were to decide to either, you know, kowtow to China or to go full bore on its commitment to free speech and either get banned from the country or or withdraw from the country, the result would be millions of Chinese basketball fans who wouldn't be able to watch the NBA, which, you know, presumably would be upsetting. But if a large drug company just picking on Merck, if Merck were to do that exact same thing, it would mean people in China with cancer would go without Keytruda, which, I mean, literally lives would be at stake versus the television viewing habits of of a very large country. So getting back to the question around Steve Kerr, do we think at some point a biopharma CEO will be posed that question? I don't know. That's a great question. I mean, unfortunately, CEOs on like NBA head coaches are not thrust in front of the press after every single game or whatever the equivalent of a game is, but they are thrust in front of sell side analysts after every single quarter. And it is about to be earnings season. I'm not sure if an analyst will use his or her you know, short amount of time with a CEO to to ask a question about geopolitics, but it's not impossible. And, and it would very much be fascinating to hear how these people would phrase that. We can take a gene from one organism, put it in another, and make a medication that can save a bunch of people's lives. It assumed that getting DNA and and making changes and stuff cost millions of dollars, and that you needed a huge lab and a research team. You'd be surprised what there is on YouTube. That was a clip from Unnatural Selection, a new documentary series coming to Netflix on Friday. Over the course of four episodes, the show follows academics, biohackers, and patients as they move through the brave new world made possible by gene therapy and genome editing. And we have the co-directors of the show on the podcast this week to discuss it. First, Joe Egender. Joe, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. We're uh, big fans of STAT, so happy to be on the podcast. And then we have Lior Kaufman. Lior, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. So in your words, what is the show about and what can they expect if they watch it? I think the show is about the new world in which we can alter DNA in any organism, including humans. And we've entered this world gradually in the past decades, but significantly with the discovery of CRISPR. We like to say that the show is not a science show, it's a show about people who are already experiencing tomorrow's technology today. And the people who are experiencing this technology today are very few, and they are the pioneers. And they are already experiencing the dilemmas, the ethics, the financial struggles of dealing with tomorrow's technology. So we thought that 
the best way to bring the viewer into light of what is going on with these technologies and the dilemmas, the benefits, the risks that they carry uh, would be best served if they experience it with the people who are already experiencing it now. What first sparked your interest in genome editing, you know, that made you want to embark on this project? Like, how did you guys get started with this? Sure. Uh, This is Joe. I come from the fiction side. And I was actually in the thick of developing a sci-fi story and uh, doing some research and trying to update some of the science. And I won't ever forget, I was sitting on the subway reading an article when I first read that CRISPR existed and that we actually can edit the essence of life. You know, it's one of those moments where you kind of stop in your tracks and... uh, and wonder if this is real. So around that time, Lior and I had met and we were talking about collaborating. Uh, Lior comes from the doc side. And when I was telling him about CRISPR, he thought initially I was talking about the sci-fi project that I was working on. (laughs) When he understood that this is, no, this is real science and it's happening now, he said, I think this might be a documentary rather than a, a science fiction film. What I was fascinated by in that conversation is the moment that I understood that, wait, there's actually, this is real and there's real people that are already dealing with this technology in their lives. Immediately, okay, let's just let's just start calling these people and understanding what it looks like. And I think that the moment that we started calling people, we were amazed by how much these people are thinking about the future and how many things that most people are not aware of, they're already thinking about how the world of tomorrow is going to look like and the the risks and the benefits and so forth. So it started this unbelievable journey that we're, we're still in today. Well, and to that point, was it difficult to convince anyone to open up their labs or their homes to you and your cameras? You know, obviously people are, especially when they're dealing with such important questions that they feel have heavy uh, repercussions to the world. I think people are sometimes wary in the first conversation, but I think that people also want to tell this story because all of our characters think that everybody should be involved in this discussion. So I think the show underlines really well how the conversations in science nowadays are not so much like, you know, can we do this, but should we do this? You know, how far should we push genome editing? You know, what are the sort of philosophical battlegrounds that people are arguing over? Well, I think, you know, the technology, and this is why it was so important for us to feature all aspects or a lot of the aspects in the show, touches many different things in our world. The environmental question is a big one. I mean, we have the ability to maybe eradicate a horrible disease like malaria in Africa, but it comes with the risk of eradicating an entire species in a big area, and it can spread through countries. It doesn't know any borders. So there's immediately this unbelievable hope and and benefit that can come out of applying this technology, but also a great risk or at least a great unknown. Another question is everything that has to do with, with fertility. I mean, we have the ability to alter genes and embryos. We can fix genes. We can make people suffer less or not at all. We can allow now uh, people who couldn't be pregnant before to have children. This is great promise for a lot of people who are suffering. On the other hand, every advancement carries the potential of doing cosmetic changes. And that starts a really big philosophical debate about 
how far do we go in designing our next generation? I'm a longtime dog owner, dog lover, I would consider myself. So I was intrigued by the storyline in the show that involved the Mississippi dog breeder who was attempting to use CRISPR-Cas9 to alter the genomes of his dogs so that they would glow in the dark. Now, honestly, when I first saw this, it kind of got me mad because it seemed to put the dog's health at risk, possibly, and kind of also underscored maybe the way genome editing could be used for exploitative or superfluous reasons. And I was wondering, is that why he was included in the show? I think first and foremost, David is included in the show because I think he has a lot of very important ideas and things to say. And he also represents the fact that we're now entering a world that there is an ability of people in their homes and their garages to do DIY genetic engineering. I think that a lot of the storylines in this show, I think people have a mixed emotion towards this idea because it's a new idea. We're changing nature in ways that we didn't think before that would be possible. You know, you're breaking this romanticism of how we like to think about nature, of how we like to think about our place in nature. And a lot of these ideas are at first scary and perhaps even disgusting to some people. And yet, a lot of what we do anyway, and people tend not to think about it too much, is breaking nature, is moving away from nature. The characters in the show, including David, are people who are facing that and are willing to face that. They're thinking about the fact that it's inevitable. And if we're going that way, how do I want to see the world? How do I want to see a world that is more designed? I think we're not taking a judgment about it. We're just presenting what these people can do with it, what are the benefits that can happen from it, and what are things that people might not like. So the broader story of of genome editing is one that has been, as you guys know very well, continuously evolving over the past few years. Just this summer, there was news about a Russian scientist who might be considering another CRISPR baby experiment. So how do you approach making a documentary that you, of course, want to stand on its own as a film or as as a miniseries, while balancing the fact that this news seems to keep breaking in genome editing? You know, when we first started the project and were dipping our toes into it, if you'd have said to us during the process of filming, there would be a CRISPR baby born, there would be a biohacker injecting himself with CRISPR, there would be a cure of a genetic blindness disease, we wouldn't have believed you because, you know, in many ways, science moves very slow. But then sometimes science moves very fast. And we are in a moment right now where CRISPR was only discovered six, seven years ago, and things are moving very fast. So on one hand, we did have to be ready for anything, ready to fly anywhere. On the other hand, we had such great relationships with our characters. When things did happen, we would see them happening through the eyes of our characters. So what was their response to the CRISPR baby being born? What is their response to these drug prices being a million, two million dollars for one shot? And so the audience gets to experience these fast-moving events with our characters. And it let us relax a little bit to say, okay, we're, we're in this world now. We are with the pioneers. So when things come up, we'll be there and, and we'll, we'll experience it with them. So finally, guys, uh, after working on this project, uh, we want to know, would either of you undergo genome editing to augment or enhance a part of your body? Uh, no, please keep your answer clean. This is not exactly a family-oriented podcast, but we do have limits. <laughs> I think a lot of these technologies 
it's easy to say, oh, I would never do that, or I wouldn't want anybody to do something like that, until you face a dire need. Now, I know you're asking about cosmetics and stuff like that, but I think it's hard sometimes to define a line between what is purely medical and what is purely cosmetic or enhancement. It will continue to be a very difficult question to answer, but I think it wouldn't be fair for us to judge it in a black and white way. Things have to be judged by a specific case and a specific need. There's a moment in episode one with Juan Carlos Belmonte at the Salk Institute, and he's talking about enhancement. He gets into inequality. Is it fair if only the rich are allowed to enhance themselves and the poor are not able to? But if everyone can have access to these technologies, as Juan Carlos said, what's wrong with everyone having the vision of an eagle? <laughs> that's uh, that's where I'll leave my uh, my opinion. <laughs> I think we we like to think of ourselves as pure and natural, but the reality is is that we all want to be birds and we go on planes. And now we're entering this world that not only can build a device to enable us, but to change and to alter our own DNA. And of course, it's scary. And of course, it immediately brings these unbelievable philosophical questions. But I think it will be too easy to discard it as something that is just a crazy idea and we should never do it. I think it actually adheres to a basic thing that we're all trying to do all the time, which is to do more than what we are made to be. The show is called Unnatural Selection, and it hits Netflix this Friday. Joe and Lior, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Next up, we're going to talk about venture capital and the often surprising source of all that money that VCs are pouring into biotech. Right. So when venture capitalists raise a fund to invest into startups, that money has to come from somewhere. Much of it comes from exactly who you'd expect, wealthy individuals, but quite often huge swaths of cash come from pension funds. In other words, the seeds of future retirement checks for people with jobs that don't bring them anywhere near biotech or finance, typically. Our stat colleague, Kate Sheridan, recently wrote a fascinating story about this world, and she joins us now to talk about it. Kate, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. So, Kate, what were some of the most surprising or notable examples you dug up about just who ultimately is funding the biotech companies that make headlines? This might be a particularly surprising one to me, um, but film and television screenwriters' retirement benefits were invested in Third Rock, which ultimately invested in Sage and Editas. Firefighters and police officers in Colorado were some of the earliest backers of Elnylam, which, of course, is the Boston-based biotech company that's developed some RNA interference-based drugs. There was also, this isn't a pension fund, but a Hawaiian charity for children and orphans put part of its endowment into a venture fund that invested in CRISPR therapeutics. So kind of everybody. So how many of these firefighters and screenwriters, etc., do we think know that their future livelihoods might depend at least in part on the success of CRISPR genome editing? I asked this question to a couple people, and they said probably very few of them. There are good reasons for this. One of them is that venture capital as a whole makes up a relatively small proportion of pension funds. And the other half is people shouldn't need to care. There are investment professionals taking care of pension funds investments who should have this under control. So... They probably have no idea. So one thing that's key to understand here is that these various pensions and endowments are most often limited partners in venture capital, emphasis on the term limited. Kate, can you explain what that term means and why it's important? 
Sure. So limited partners in venture capital funds essentially just promise to give their money to the VC firm. And then the general partners, the VCs themselves, go out and spend it as they see fit. So it's not like pension funds are investing directly in a VC's portfolio companies. It's certainly not like firefighters are investing directly in a company like Editas. That's not how it works at all. So with all those caveats in mind, is this risky? Like, is there a different risk benefit calculation at play here than factors in when professional investors on Wall Street or in Silicon Valley decide to invest in biotech? It's supposed to be a little risky, but not too risky, right? So the whole idea behind investing in venture capital is that it's supposed to be just risky enough that it might give better returns on that investment than, say, investing in the stock market or investing in companies that are already public. But the pension fund managers are supposed to be very careful about diversifying their portfolios, right? So not just investing in one venture capital fund and not just investing a ton of money in one venture capital fund, but investing things pretty broadly. So if one fund or one portfolio company goes downhill, it shouldn't have a massive impact on a given pension. That's the idea. Anyway. So for many of these public pension funds, anyone can go online and see just how they're investing. And that means people can get mad if they don't like how, you know, say the California Teachers Retirement Fund is spending its money. Kate, have you ever heard of any public backlash to these kinds of investments? I haven't heard of any public backlash to these particular kinds of investments, certainly not in biotech. That said, I have heard about VCs that were kind of displeased that public pension funds investments became available online. In the early 2000s, uh, there was a lawsuit based in California that people were concerned would result in venture capital firms declining to take money from certain public sector investors that might be subject to disclosure laws. That hasn't seemed to have happened too much, um, although I haven't looked into that as much. Kate, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Next up, we'll bring back the lightning round. All right. So item number one is uh, the vindication, I guess, of uh, biohacker Josiah Zayner. Rebecca, what's going on? So to catch you up on this story, if you were regular listener of this podcast, you may recall we had Josiah Zayner, the biohacker, on this podcast to talk about an investigation uh, by California regulators into his business practices. They were investigating whether he was practicing medicine without a license. And a few weeks back, uh, the Medical Board of California wrote to say that it had wrapped up its investigation, and that it does not anticipate any further action, which means, in other words, that Zayner is innocent. So, of course, we asked Josiah how he felt when he heard the news, and he sent us the following audio statement. You can imagine my sense of relief. My whiskey drinking has returned to normal for now. But I imagine the government will be back soon, knocking on my door. The next item, we're going to talk about the shortage of a leukemia drug. Damien, tell us the situation. Right. So there was reporting in the New York Times and elsewhere this week that a chemotherapy drug that is the backbone of a lot of cancer treatment, including uh, for leukemia, like you mentioned, but but other tumor types as well, has become increasingly scarce. And, you know, as we've talked about drug shortages in the past, that leads to the potential of a nightmare situation for patients and for doctors alike. Some of you may remember that a couple weeks ago, we had Dr. Ben Davies, a urologist from Pittsburgh on this podcast, and he was talking exactly about this situation as it referred to a drug that he uses to treat patients with bladder cancer. So here is another example of of a kind of standby 
old chemotherapy drug that's in short supply. And, and what's interesting here, again, too, is that it's only made by a single manufacturer. This drug is called Vincristine. It used to be made by Teva and Pfizer. Teva got out of the business of making Vincristine, and now Pfizer is basically the only manufacturer, and it's running into shortages. This is a problem that seems to consistently happen time again and with no real solution. So finally, our last item, we're going to do the platonic ideal of a lightning round segment, which is the intersection of Hooters and biotech. Adam, please explain. Yeah, this is a good one. So Chanticleer Holdings, which is the owner and operator of the Hooters uh, restaurant chain, announced a plan to combine with a biotech company in a reverse merger. So basically turning from selling chicken wings and burgers and beer to developing cancer drugs. I would have loved to be in the meeting where this decision was made. I just wonder if there was any recognition of the absurdity at play. Yeah, what stuck out to me, I don't think a lot about restaurant chains, uh, whether they be of Hooters ilk or otherwise, but Hooters was in such dire financial straits. I I didn't, I guess I just didn't really think about it. And so it's interesting that it's a reverse merger um, pivoting to what was a pretty low value uh, biotech company called Sonnet Biotherapeutics. But it's kind of fascinating to me that the people who run the Hooters parent company saw that, uh, saw the risks of developing cancer drugs and et cetera, as a better business decision than wings and hamburgers. And can you wear tight uh, white T-shirts and orange shorts in the research lab? <laughs> I'm assuming. I'm assuming not. You don't. You don't have to answer that question. That's a rhetorical question. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and other reverse mergers involving restaurant chains we should cover. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And of course, if you like what we do, please mention the podcast to a friend, or you can leave a review, a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. 